Hello and welcome to this, the seventh edition of Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. This week I've been in Oxford to interview Catriona Kelly about her new book from Yale, Children's World. The book is a vast, immensely absorbing and richly detailed examination of what it was like to be a child in Russia in the 20th century. Though the way the ideology of the Soviet regime impinged on the childhood of its citizens is impossible to escape, the book is also a marvellous treasure trove of other information about the lives of Russian children. Here, for example, is how Kelly describes some of the quintessential experiences of Russian childhood in her introduction. Being wrapped up like an overheated dumpling to take the air, probably in the charge of a fierce babushka, and, up to the late 1990s, of being taught to use an abacus, eating special children's foods such as milk kasha, a sort of sweet liquid semolina pudding, or milk soup, similar only with macaroni, experiencing extremely early potty training, learning to skate, toboggan, and still more importantly, stay upright on icy pavements, participating in family leisure activities such as mushroom and berry hunting. I asked Catriona, what had led her to undertake this book in the first place? I'd been working on print culture. I just finished a study of advice literature, so sort of pamphlets telling you how to look after your house, how to hold your fork, how to talk proper, and all that sort of thing. And so I wrote to Yale because I, I know they've got this line in illustrated books and inquired whether they might be interested. And they wrote back and said, well, they thought that subject was too narrow, but what about a general history of Russian childhood? And I thought, first of all, it was a completely crazy idea because, I mean, I didn't really want to do a huge book. I mean, an even bigger one than the advice literature topic. And then I started thinking about it. And, I mean, there wasn't anything written generally about the subject was the first thing. And secondly, I started to, to get interested. I mean, I sort of got interested once once the idea had been suggested in it. And I must say, I mean, getting interested in it has, be, has, has been a combination of discovering how interested Russians are in this and I think it's the first topic I've w worked on where Russians have been genuinely and passionately interested in what I was telling them. I mean one of the things I've tried to do is to sort of set Russian childhood in comparative context because it's so often been seen not just within the country but also outside it as something that's really utterly separate and separate on ideological grounds primarily which I think are in the end simply a very superficial part of the childhood experience. And once you'd identified your subject, how did you then frame it so that it, it became manageable, so you could you could work in it? I mean, I suppose what I've tried to do is to, I mean, organise it round two separate themes. And one theme is precisely the sort of way that the childhood is shaped from outside by propaganda, um, by the commitment of the Russian state both before 1917 but more particularly after 1917 to um, a radical pro program of modernization and then the second theme is trying to see children's experience from the inside and to some extent that's quixotic I mean you can't interview children in in you know there's a kind of cliche about social history cultural history that you can't interview people from the past anyway when they're actually living in the time that they're experiencing. I mean, it's not clear that even if you could, it would necessarily help because that's always at a distance from lived experience anyway. But I, I think it's essentially trying to get away from, again, this perspective which always sees Soviet childhood as essentially contained within images of Stalin and Gelia Marquisova, for instance. Mm. So I was trying to put, 
produce an alternative view. And I think um, Orlando Figes's book, The Whisperers, is is very good and very interesting. But the childhood experience in that is, you know, very much the, the sort of pattern that it's defined by state intervention in this particular case of a very violent kind of the arrest of parents, the return of parents from the prison camps. And obviously the, the book is not solely about childhood experiences, it's about families in a broader sense. And what I was trying to do is to sort of write about childhood experiences insofar as that's possible in the context of Russian history at sort of rather more normal times and you know, deal with things like what Russian schools looked like, I mean, you know, what school food was mm. like, um, what people's relationships with their parents were like in these sort of you know, one room, one single room of the so-called communal apartment or, I mean, those sort of um, a peasant household, I mean, how much space children had within that. And essentially how, I mean, the children's world is not just a cliche, which was used uh, as it was very widely for sort of commercial purposes and also for sort of sentimental books, but it's also the, to describe the way I'm trying to see sort of, as it were, the entire context of everyday life experience for mm. children. And in order to collect your material, you didn't just use archives, which I imagine in themselves wouldn't have been accessible 10, 15 years ago, but you also used oral testimony, used interviews and questionnaires. Yes, I mean, it's completely right that the um, archival documentation is mostly produced by official organisations one way and another. I mean, people have made very interesting use of unpublished memoirs that have turned up in archives, and I've made some use of material like that as well. And of course, I have used the official documentation when statistics say. It has to be said that people often talk about how unreliable oral history is potentially, but um, the statistics I ended up feeling were the most unreliable part of the evidence altogether mm. because, I mean, they started off being unreliable at the beginning of the process because people didn't want to admit that things were going wrong in the particular place where they worked, or sometimes they didn't want to admit that things were going right. I mean, it can cut both mm. ways. Of course, oral history's got sort of difficulties, and especially it has with a society that's changed as much as Russia, which is committed at some level to sort of erasure of the past. Of course, there are difficulties with people having false memory syndrome. I mean, kind of giving you the present day version of what the past was like. There's very often a sort of didactic impulse, which is young people today don't know they're born. I mean, we kind of worked our fingers to the bone and you know, now, now children, they just lie around and do nothing. And that's particularly characteristic of village interviews. But on the other hand, I mean, there are all sorts of areas of life which just aren't considered to be interesting for written testimony. I mean, you know, things like what toys you had. I mean, there's a sort of very strong impulse to write intellectualised memoirs and self-analytical memoirs, as there would be in um, many cultures, but I think it's probably, there's an even stronger impulse in, in Russia because of, I mean, it's not just censorship, but it's it's a, it's a culture which is characterised by a very strong commitment to, I mean, the idea of a particular literary heritage of writing a literary memoir. I mean, a memoir should sort of take as its models memoirs of the mm. past. And so you get a much more informal type of testimony. Both of them are, are, are equally interesting. Going back to 1917, it struck me that every, every state has obviously got an attitude to children that's made yes. manifest in yes. its policies and its, its pronouncements. But what made Russia of particular interest was the the radical caesura that came in 1917 and also the explicitness thereafter with which policies towards children were enunciated. Can you say a bit about that? Yes, I mean, I think if one being pedantic, the sort of really big cleavage is in fact 1918 rather than 1917 mm. because that's when the sort of the first sort of 
code of the so-called United School of Labour. So this is a comprehensive school and one which offers a labour education, mm. a sort of technical education alongside the academic programme and for everybody is introduced and also the school programme which is extremely modern compared with progressive educational ideas of the, of the day. And when that lasts for the first 14 years of Soviet power, I mean 15 years uh, more accurately, but 14 years counting from 1918 so to 1932 when they start bringing back uh, a much more sort of Soviet and indeed Russian-centred programme and one in which formal subjects start to exist where curricula specify far more exactly what gets done in um, individual lessons and how the methodology of lessons should work. So that was a very big, big difference for children. You know, already in at earlier stages, there was upheaval. I mean, a, a really big distinction already from 1917 is participation. So kind of school parliaments. So it goes from a sort of situation where even introducing the scout organisation causes raids, raised eyebrows. I mean, there were sorry Russian officials before 1917 who don't feel that that's appropriate because associationism is something that could lead to, you know, sort of dangerous mm. sort of political movements. It's in fact not till 1905 that parent-teacher organisations are permitted, and so there's a sort of radical split between that that attitude and then 1917, where I mean, our children are being elected to the pedagogical council, and every sort of class is supposed to have its sort of own Soviet, so that there are kind of analogous processes happening in society and in the school. And yes, then I mean, the sort of state sponsorship of children's institutions. I mean, the situation tends to get a bit simplified in a lot of writing about um, the early years of Soviet power. And I mean, if you take a book like Richard Pipe's The Bolshevik Regime, you sort of believe from that that the Soviet government wanted to have every child in an institution, which is actually not the case. I mean, the sort of most radical organisations such as Prilip Kult had a sort of social model which worked like that, but there was a great deal of dispute about what should be done with so-called family children and the children who were not abandoned. But it's certainly true that there were utopian institutions for abandoned children, which are often not utopian, of course, in reality at all. I mean, they were sometimes ghastly. Mm. I mean, even in the sense that people were sort of struggling to make ends meet, struggling to get food, struggling to get anything to sort of run them at all, particularly in um, 1921, 1922. Then there's also a great deal of input into sort of restructuring family life at the level of essentially trying to write child rights into family legislation at all. And again, it's often misunderstood because before 1917, there really was no concept of children's rights inscribed in legislation mm. at all. And there's a great deal of um, campaigning to sort of start up um, particular legislation against child abuse. But it flies in the teeth of a sort of highly patriarchal, traditional appreciation of family law, which associates the father and the Tsar, so that, I mean, you know, kind of giving empowering children is problematic because it suggests all sorts of things mm. about society more widely. And then the other, it, it seemed to me that the period of Stalinism seemed to be the other yes. period of shift. I suppose when, when people think about Soviet childhood, they see those images that you refer to of, yes. of Papa Stalin and the, the adoring children, and suddenly the, the cult around his personality seems pronounced. That's absolutely right. I mean, again, it's not just Stalinism because, I mean, it's high Stalinism. So this this is a phase that sets in um, really markedly. I mean, there are sort of signs of it before, but the real shift um, is right about the mid-1930s. And it sort of follows the cult of Stalin, follows the same path as the cult of Stalin does for adults. I mean, 
slightly slightly behind hand and was always subordinate to that and there's you know a rather wonderful quotation about Stalin from the great Soviet encyclopedia which is about how he's interested in everything you know from the swamps of Colchis mm. <laughs> to the contents of school text textbooks mm. but it's very clear that foreign policy is at one level and school textbooks is is another mm. so that uh, Stalin's personal intervention again in the history of childhood is uh, not nearly as intensive as is sometimes supposed. I mean, a lot of this happens at the sort of middle level of um, Soviet government power. But nonetheless, I mean, he's, he obviously was prepared to endorse the cult, I mean, not ad nauseam. I mean, there's a famous incident when he actually banned a biography of himself which was written for school children. So, I mean, occasionally he liked to sort of interfere with this and sort of, I mean, it's rather like Julius Caesar sort of suggests that, you know, it was all a bit much mm. and he was <laughs> really not satisfied <laughs> with the kind of lackish, um, more lackish manifestations of this. But certainly from 1934 onwards, this starts to be promoted in a very big way, 1935 to 1936, which is the time when they start allowing New Year trees again, or rather Christmas trees get uh, rehabilitated only as New Year trees. Um, it's also the time when the slogan emerges, um, thank you, dear comrade Stalin, for a happy childhood, mm. and that gets promoted on posters. And then there's this real sort of orgy of congratulations to the leader in his jubilee years, so his 60th birthday in 1939, and I mean, you know, a great deal of material comes out, and so the children writing poems, um, so-called, you know, the, the poems of the happy ones, and all these glowing images of childhood, which of course make it, at that period, also very difficult to write about children who aren't happy, unless they positively deserve to be unhappy. Mm. They're very bad children, I mean, sort of obviously discipline and punishment for them, and children are supposed to earn um, happiness at some level, unless they're very tiny children, so, you know, before the age of reason, as it were. But nonetheless, um, say, um, top pupils at Lichniki and classes get congratulated, there's sort of school prize-giving days, they get sort of book prizes, um, they get special privileges, borrowing privileges in libraries. Of course, they got a lot of congratulation from their teachers, they very often establish special relationships with their teachers and so on. On the other hand, they are expected also to help the pupils who aren't doing as well as they are. So there's a sort of self-help principle which is built in. And then, of course, this period also goes with the sort of a rise, um, although this is always a kind of important area of Soviet education, but it becomes sort of particularly vehement in the late 1930s, so-called self-criticism, which doesn't just mean self-criticism. I mean, you aren't supposed to be too boastful. I mean, despite being top of the class, and if you are, you're soon reminded not to be. But self-criticism also means criticism of others. So that's sort of standing up in class and saying, you know, well, it's no wonder that Olya gets such low marks because I saw her behind the bike shed with, mm. um, you know, carrying on with Vanya again, and um, you know, she ought to take a more serious attitude. Or alternatively, um, when you know, Boris should be doing his homework, he's always out there playing marbles in the courtyard. And it stretches from that right up to, again, what's much more familiar in the West, which is people standing up, children standing up in the classroom and denouncing children whose parents have been imprisoned. Mm. And that did happen. It was by no means universal. And again, I've talked to people whose parents, um, their father, say, was arrested and who don't remember anything being said about this at school at all. So it doesn't mean that, as it were, ideology and propaganda said one thing and you know this, the letter of the law was one thing and everybody did something totally different and that would also be a sort of wrong generalization about it but there was quite a lot of room for maneuver and 
obviously from the end of the Stalin era much more. It seemed to me that the the later decades of the Soviet Union, the, the terminus towards which it was heading was sort of disillusionment with the regime and yeah. the sort of unravelling of this myth of the happy childhood and that was because the myth was so bound up with the whole ideology of the re regime, they were sort of they were sort of coming apart slowly, but ineluctably yes. at, at the same time. You got a kind of contradiction because I think a lot of adults in the sort of nineteen sixties onwards are pretty fed up with the happy childhood myth. And I mean, there's a famous I mean, Zhvenetsky, um, who is a sort of famous comedian from Odessa, and, and spoke for a lot of people and. Um, he has a sort of riff which starts, this isn't a country, it's, it's um, an infant school. And people on the television talk to us as if we were all five years old. Yes, infantilisation is a word that you, you yes. use on a couple of yes. occasions. Yes, I mean, some, some adults sort of, if you like, live an infantilised life. I mean, I suppose, you know, that sounds, sounds kind of um, dismissive and um, sort of demeaning to put it like that. But I think there are areas, I mean, for example, I've, I've done some work recently on um, the reception of Shakespeare for a mass audience in the 1930s and the sort of sense in which Shakespeare becomes part of Soviet culture, he becomes Sovietized. Mm. And I've tried to link that to the way that I think that children read children's literature, it doesn't matter who it's by, it's part of their own world. I mean, it's a fantasy world, yes. But I mean, Russian children now absolutely love Harry Potter and I don't think they see this as anything kind of, which is sort of from some other country. I mean, instead they see it as part of an imaginative world. They don't know or care who writes these books a lot of the time. And sort of Shakespeare gets involved into that, into that process, and I sort of see, seen that as infantilization. I mean, kind of alongside that sort of pattern, I mean, there is a sort of impatience with infantilization, um, and that comes out very strongly. And it comes out also in writing about how children ought to be treated. So there's a sort of reliberalization, if you like, of attitudes to children. I mean, a great upsurge of cultivation of children's own kind of creative writing. And the other thing, I mean, yes, I mean, adults get impatient with child happiness. Actually, if you talk to people, the biggest, I mean, I wouldn't even say the nostalgia, but the sort of the, the warmest memories of childhood and the sort of most consistently happy memories of childhood are precisely from people who were brought up in the sort of late 1950s onwards. It's a very sort of settled period of Soviet existence. Mm. There are food shortages, but they're not of an order that mean that children's earliest memories are likely to be remembering standing in bread queues. And what made their childhoods happy for them in retrospect? It's often what they had. You know, people's earliest memories. We started with the interviews with a sort of general question, which is, what, what are your most vivid memories of childhood? Mm. And it didn't kind of get asked systematically of every informant, and sometimes it got asked as, um, what are your earliest memories of childhood? But it was consistent enough, and especially from people brought up in towns, for it to be absolutely clear that people often start their narrations of childhood when you're asking about a city childhood from the um, 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, with, say, a memory of being at the Dacha, being taken to Dietsky Mir, which is the kind of Soviet toys or us, it's sort of big toy shop, and, you know, their father, every time he got his pay packet, this is working-class households as well, because people are trying to interview um, large numbers of people from them because they don't tend to leave written memoirs. And so the father gets his pay packet, he's a lorry driver, say, in a factory, and he takes his daughter down to Children's World toy shop and you know buys her a big doll. And obviously, it's not something that happened every month, but this becomes the sort of canonical, mm. the representative memory of childhood. So it's that. I mean, it's outings, um, family holidays. I mean, the family holiday actually does become a sort of social reality at this period because in the 1930s, people are often being sent on holidays separately if they had them at all. 
many people don't remember having holidays till the 1940s, actually, and I mean that includes diaries. You know, people saying, "I've just taken my first ever holiday," and then they were set to, sent to these sort of so-called homes of culture and rest. And you know, one of the things that you often did at these places would have a genteel affair because you knew it wasn't going to sort of last longer than when you both kind of mm. got back to the city. So that was the sort of pattern of holidays at that period. And then in the sort of 1960s, 1970s onwards, it becomes increasingly common for the family to sort of, you know, save money, take off with really quite a lot of cash. And that includes, again, these cash economies, working class families. And, you know, spend this packet of money in a couple of months at the seaside. You'd rent a room from somebody. You weren't sort of in the state system. So your holiday would be kind of going to the beach. Both your parents would kind of be at home all day long, which they never normally were. If you lived in a communal flat, then you know you were probably in in a one room of somebody else's apartment, but you didn't have to live with them all the time. There's a bit more space you could get out of doors, and that sort of becomes a sort of paradisical experience for a lot of people. Did you discover things about the treatment of boys versus girls that that surprised you, or the, the way that that sort of evolved in the 20th century? I mean, this is quite interesting. I mean, you know, when I worked over the questionnaire, so the questionnaire we used for the oral history, I wrote the first version myself and I wrote it in Russian because I wanted to sort of get a sort of feeling of how you would actually talk to people about this. And I think it was very important to use kind of rather babyish Russian to ask about childhood experience. I mean, people can't really go back and talk analytically about it in the first instance. I mean, they can't simultaneously remember and analyse, or at least if they can. Um, they're usually not the sort of informants we were, we were talking mm. to who, you know, in some cases in villages had only had three years education if they'd even had that much. And it's interesting that one of the questions that was sort of struck out of the first version, I sort of said, do you remember fighting? And I just um, sort of just put this down. And it kind of came back to me from my sort of Russian collaborators as, um, for boys, do you remember fighting? Mm. And I said, look, hey, I remember fighting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was the terror of the playground. <laughs> I said, I want a question. And I... I, eventually we converted into do you remember watching fights or taking part in them so mm. that it could kind of because I thought well maybe this is completely grotesquely wrong for the cultural context then I discovered that when I was um, interviewing these women from working class backgrounds brought up in the 1920s and 1930s and I said do you remember fighting this oh yes I mean you know if a boy pulled my pigtails and I kind of go right back and scratch his face mm. <laughs> so um, there was a sort of in other words a distinction between the sort of analytical assumption of gender distinction and the fact that that experience of gender distinction wasn't necessarily there and there's been a huge amount of change on this yes I mean as you, your question suggests which is in the 1920s and 19, early 1930s a lot of emphasis on egalitarian education on you know um, not having dolls in kindergartens because it would give children sort of you know pretty bourgeois attitudes towards family roles if you did have doll, dolls they were supposed to be dolls from ethnic minorities so they were sort of teaching children about kind of you know good social relations mm. in a non-family sense to the sort of the kind of relentless rise of the sort of the puffy bow in the late, late 1930s the sort of thing that if you asked a, a western person who was used to sort of pictures of russia what they thought little girls look like they would sort of say well they wear those big bows in their hair and they wear frilly dresses and and again that's you know something which is historically defined also very strongly social status defined and generally the higher up the social ladder you are the more likely you are to have experienced Russian upbringing which means often I mean quite indulgent I mean in other words reasoning not slapping mm. with reasoning with rather than slapping children 
but it can also be that you know the children are dressed in sort of rather more plain clothes and they're supposed to have sort of more utilitarian clothes so they can kind of engage in sort of you know running around and kind of some more unisex clothes unisex exactly and again there are periods of history in the early 1960s where unisex clothing is pushed quite hard and there's criticism of you know putting children in kind of fully nylon dresses and sort of taking them out to play Mm. because you know what are they going to wear for special occasions criticism of parents who you know spend their last kopeck on dressing little girls kind of up to the nines when they've got a manual job um, particularly single mothers and it would be better for them to spend spend their money on kind of you know providing a sort of healthier diet than they do but it's certainly true that there's I mean from the late 1960s onwards there's increasing sort of evidence at the official level as well of trying actually to inculcate gender differences um, and, and this is partly because of the so-called demographic crisis it was the worry that Russian families were getting smaller, families in bits of the Soviet Union which were non-Russian were getting, if not getting bigger, were certainly not declining in size to the same extent and that there was, you know, sort of therefore a, a dropping, an ageing Russian population. Um, of course the population of the Russian Federation is now declining so that some of that um, discussion is coming back again and I think there's still a very strong sense that, you know, girls should be educated into sort of, you know, liking to have babies pretty quickly and no, it's pretty common for um, young women. I mean, even now, it's relatively common. I mean, in the late Soviet period, it was even more common for young women to have babies, if not before they finish university, certainly immediately afterwards, mm. um, assuming they're at universities and may have babies even earlier if they're in, in manual jobs. And the book, the book officially ends in 1991, but at the end, you do sort of look over yes. into the, the new world post-communism. Yes. I wondered what you felt the lot of children in the Soviet Union, well, in, in Russia, is, um, is today. How, how they've sort of coped with that transition, that new generation who, well, the children who are as old as the oldest children in the book won't remember a communist <laughs> exactly. world at all yes, firsthand. Yes, yes. No, again, I've got a friend who's um, a younger daughter, and she was born in, I think, 1985, just hardly knows who Lenin is. Mm. And I think what's being done to history textbooks in... Um, the Russian school at the moment is in many ways rather regrettable. I mean, certainly the sort of book for teachers of history that I've seen, sort of manual for teachers of history, sort of says things like the Soviet Union was the envy of the world in terms of its human rights record. And that is, um, should we say tactfully, a rather difficult line to to argue if you're talking about the entire West. I mean, obviously there are parts of the, uh, the world, I mean, parts of the third world, where the Soviet Union does indeed seem a model of economic rights plus as much human rights as you could decently expect alongside the economic rights. But nonetheless, I mean, I think that it is, um, you know, that it, it's true that there is a sort of um, model of Soviet reality which has been distorted, distorted in the West. And it is strange also that there was a sort of generation of children who grew up when um, history books pretty well didn't exist because the Soviet books were discredited, the new books hadn't yet been produced, the teachers were sort of, you know, teaching off the top of their heads and avoiding anything controversial because they were kind of afraid that they'd get it wrong. Mm. And so there's you know, literally this huge gap in, in knowledge. And, I mean, often accompanied by also really remarkably little interest in the past. And now there's more teaching of, of, of the Soviet past in schools, and that's probably just as well. I mean, how one does it is a whole set of, you know, different mm. set of cans of worms, as it were. But... Apart from that, I mean, the sort of school education, the fact that school education has changed in lots of ways. I mean, I think school education in, in most respects has changed immeasurably for the better, actually. I mean, you know, foreign languages are taught much better than they used to be. 
there's some anxiety, I think, the standards of maths and science teaching have gone down. I mean, they, they were very high in the Soviet Union, I mean, again, to be fair. As far as the sort of larger picture goes, there was, I mean, a collapse of state funding in the 1990s, and I mean, it was part of, you know, shock therapy, um, marketization, and it created enormous problems for a lot of institutions. It created problems for paediatrics. Um, institutions for children, orphanages and so on, have also had a very tough time, but the positive factor for those who kind of want to make contact with Western practices is that, for example, it's now much easier to arrange adoption for children. Many children are better off in um, adoptive families than they would have been in institutions. It's put less pressure on institutions because the number of children that's in the institutions is dropping. Admittedly, the children in, left in institutions are often the ones who've got physical or mental problems, but on the other hand, there's the potential of concentrating resources on them when the, mm. in inverted commas, normal children have been kind of rehomed. So it's a very mixed picture and in terms of family life it is too because a lot of people will sort of remember with regret, I mean sort of the nostalgia input often comes when people talk about the fact that you know their own children don't play outside anymore, everybody's kind of afraid mm. of you know security issues. The courtyard space is taken up with four-wheel drives and, you know, you can't kick a football through the front window of one of them or their parents are kind of, you know, looking at thousands of dollars of compensation and, you know, possibly also sort of men in sunglasses coming to the doors and making threatening visits, which hmm. is, um, you know, a real hazard. What you don't have to do, you don't have to stand and queue for hours for milk. I mean, things may be expensive, but foods, foodstuffs are freely available. You know, children now look like their Western counterparts. But the, the charge that comes up in the book from some of your informants is commercialisation. From people of yes, the older generation, yes, they yes. say childhood has become commercialised, which is not, not an yes. unfamiliar charge in the West. Exactly. No, and of course they're partly right. And I think, again, as people from my generation would probably feel that sort of freedom of movement mm. children have lost. But on the other hand, and the counter-argument to that, and I think a very valid one, and again often raised by kind of informants of my sort of generation or younger sort of people in their 30s and 40s is that I mean people were obsessed with uh, material things actually in the late Soviet era and but it's true I mean again I wrote a sort of article about Soviet luxury and the word luxury isn't used but things that in a sort of spirit of objective inquiry might have been considered luxuries because they were incredibly hard to get hold of were being pushed, pushed to the population as things were actually essential for children to have. So you would kind of get articles which said children should be fed as much fruit and vegetables as possible. You went down to your local vegetable shop and there was, you know, um, potatoes, um, three mouldy looking carrots, kind of this um, sad looking kind of frostbitten cabbage. Mm. And you panicked and you went down to the kind of farmer's market and you bought um, tomatoes which were kind of costing you know, 10 rubles a kilo, which is sort of a tenth of a monthly wage, and a lemon was costing one, one ruble, and these were kind of winter prices. People were buying these things, mm. and, you know, adults would kind of be living on bread and tea so that the children could be fed with the things that were held to be necessary for them. I suppose what's different between the West and Russia is the speed of change. Yes, and, and the fact that people don't necessarily want to remember. I mean, maybe they don't in the West as well. I mean, I think one, again, needs to think back to what would have been the case with parents in the 1960s have been brought up in a back-to-back -back with an outside um, toilet with you know kind of hand-me-downs with um, you know dance socks whether they really wanted to tell their children sort of sit down and tell their children about what a wonderful childhood they had and I suspect the answer is mm. no and the nostalgia that we have now for the past is partly because it seems so remote and people are you know the past is a foreign country even that famous quotation by L.P. Hartley 
I mean, people don't always feel that. I mean, they often feel the past is drearily the same as what they're now living in. But by the stage that the present appears to be distinct from the past, they do start feeling like that. So the nostalgia industry, I think, feeds off the fact that the, you know, there is this sort of radical distinction between the past and the present. And so paradoxically, if you like, on the one hand, there have been these radical changes in uh, Russia, which have sort of been regime changes and changes of ideology. On the other hand, the really big change for a lot of people was the 1960s when life started getting more prosperous. And then children really were leading sort of childhoods which were radically different from the ones that, that their parents had had. Thank you very much.